Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome at uh, FEPS Talks. I'm uh, Gerard Oosterwijk. I'm a policy analyst for the digital uh, portfolio of uh, the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. And we're here today with uh, Rachel Ferdin, who was one of our uh, researchers on the, the study into the Q-commerce. Rachel, maybe you can introduce yourself. Hi, yeah. Well, very pleased to be here. My name is Rachel Verdin. I'm a researcher based at the Digital Futures at Work Research Centre at the University of Sussex. I'm, uh, I've recently been working on the Euroship project, which is looking at kind of the digitalisation of work and welfare and what the risks of that are. So I'm, I'm really interested in inequality and the future of work and the role of trade unions. Um, having spent the first part of my career working in the trade union movement, so very pleased to be here today to share some of these insights. Yeah, and today we're going to talk about a very specific and a very new sector, the Q-commerce and the dark stores. It's something that popped up more or less in Europe around the COVID pandemic. People wanted to have the delivery of their groceries to their house. The promise was really within 30 minutes, sometimes even within 10 minutes to get your groceries at your doorstep. Um, there is a, a lot to it also from the labor perspective, huh? the riders. Um, can you tell a little bit about the study uh, you, you did uh, for us? Yeah, sure. Um, well, Q-commerce isn't a clearly defined sector. There are quite a lot of iterations of it. And, and as you mentioned, it's, you know, it boomed onto the scene during COVID and, it, you know, it hasn't stopped evolving and changing since then. So in terms of the research that we conducted, we focused very much on what we call the pure Q-commerce players. So those are uh, the, the Q-commerce startups that essentially have invested in micro-fulfillment centres or dark stores, as we call them, um, in kind of central urban locations, so located to quite a lot of um, potential customers, essentially, because the key kind of USB or offering for them was really this very short delivery window, so sometimes 30 minutes, sometimes even less, 15 or, or 10 minutes, with the idea being that you would have within this dark store some pickers rushing around, picking and packing very small baskets of goods goods to then be delivered by riders to the customer's door within that short time frame. Um, as I say, there were other iterations, so you do have some kind of existing retailers partnering perhaps with some of the other um, delivery platform firms, um, but that hasn't so much been the focus of this research, mm. as I say, it's purely been uh, about. So it's really the new players, the, the platforms, most known is Gorillas. I think that was a, a very, yeah. like, a big name, but there are others. Eh? So there is, uh, like, an overview, you also, in your research, made an overview of the different players in the different countries. It, it came from Turkey, I think, right? Like, Gatier is the is a player that's also active now in the European Union, but it was something that was like first tried there and it's big already over a decade. Um, is that something that, uh, are, are there any things that you picked up from there? Like that you say like that, that's... Yeah, I mean, Getty is a, a significant player. Um, you know, they, they had a, a 12 billion valuation in 2021. Um, but, you know, the firms have changed rapidly as well. So, you know, you mentioned gorillas as well. Well, you know, during the course of this re research, which we've been doing over the last nine months or so, so um, Getir has acquired Gorillas. Um, there's also been a kind of churn as, as other firms have kind of come onto the market and, and then changed. So Getir acquired Wheezy, for example, in the UK. Mm. Um, some other firms, um, you know, are, are no more. So the likes of Fridge No More or Buy K, um, you know, again, they don't exist anymore. Or some of them have kind of transitioned their service to kind of um, potentially become more profitable. So, for instance, a firm called Jiffy uh, have now decided to offer software.
software as a service instead. Um, so there's a, a huge amount of change and, and churn within the industry, and that's become even more pressing because, as you say, as, as we kind of moved beyond the pandemic and, and people have returned to more normal shopping behaviours, that's also been a, accompanied by a tightening of this huge amounts of kind of venture capital investment which have, have flown around mm-hmm. the, the sector, just encouraging firms to do, you know, we talk about the Getter example and to what we term blitz scale, so to open up in huge amounts of new markets very quickly, funded by this venture capital investment. So it, it kind of marks these firms as distinct as well, because when you look at firms, say, like Uber, when they enter a a new city, um, potentially they'll spend, say, 10% on um, setting up kind of tangibles and intangibles for for their Mm -hmm. business. Whereas these pure Q commerce players were setting up um, with around 30% of their funding. Um, The remaining 70% spent on customer and rider subsidies Mm -hmm. um, to basically try and generate a kind of market share and, and drive the market. The hope being that once they have the market and they have the customers, then they can start to perhaps think more seriously about how to turn a profit. So we, we shouldn't put this in the same basket as, as Uber, as other platforms that didn't really have the assets. So here we're talking about actual dark stores owned by the company. Often the, also the bikes were owned by the, by the companies. Yeah. And also another difference you found out was also when it comes to the labor conditions, right? Because labor conditions not per se, but the, the contracts. Because uh, where we uh, here in, in Brussels had a lot of discussion also around the platform work directive that's still ongoing. Eh? So that's also a thing that interests us as, as FEPS. Uh, for future policy, uh, how should we see this? Here, often people got an actual contract, right? And and did it make any difference? So how did you... Uh, Absolutely, had- yeah. So, mo- well, we conducted a series of interviews. We um, we spoke with um, workers in uh, across four different companies in, in three countries, so in the UK, Spain and Germany. And through our research, we found that, uh, that there was a trend for most of those riders and pickers to be offered um, employment contracts, which which obviously marks them as, as very distinct from what we come to expect in terms of, um, you know, platform delivery companies. However, the reality, you know, in terms of how these workers experienced the, the, the work and the way that they were treated was perhaps not what you might expect. Um, so, you know, while they were contracted, actually, we found evidence of the same kind of precarity that you would associate with platform work very much in operation um, uh, for, for these workers, which I think was quite a shocking finding. Mm. So what were the most shocking finds that you encountered? How did you go about it? Did you uh, do interviews? And not only with riders, I think, eh? also with the Mm. store managers, because like it's all these new companies. It's not only uh, riders, right? Mm -hmm. It's not only the app. There's also like, like we said, physical dark stores, but also pickers. Yeah. People who prepare the the shipping, Mm. but also store managers managing it. So it's Mm. not only the app, it's also like a physical location. So how did you go about that? And what did you find? Like, what was the things that really stick to Mm. you, like that you remembered? So, I mean, in terms of conducting the research, the kind of the first layer of it was um, speaking to, to, you know, those involved in the, in the businesses and um, industry experts and stakeholders. And, and we then wanted to, to go and, and speak to, to the workers and find out if, you know, if what we'd heard from the, the industry experts 
adverts, if you like, was was the reality and how people experienced that kind of at the, at the shop front level, if you like. Um, so we spoke with um, both riders and pickers and those who were kind of supervising and managing operations within dark stores. And as I say, actually, what came through from them was despite this kind of preferential contractual status that, that, that most of them had, the reality was that there was, um, for instance, in the German case, a high use of fixed term contracts in the UK case, an increasing use of zero hour contracts. We saw in, in all countries reports of, of pay and, and you know the bonuses that had been offered, these signing on bonuses, which was part of those kind of rider and customer subsidies I mentioned, you know, being watered down or you know becoming non-existent as, as time went on. Or, you know, perhaps um, statutory entitlements not being honoured. So for instance, the rest breaks that, that, that riders or, or pickers should be receiving, or you know, the people telling me that actually they've been working there for, for a year, say, and these were long-term staff, but working there for a year and yet still hadn't been able to take any holiday, any paid holiday. So, you know, I think it was, that for me was a really shocking finding, as was some of the, um, some of the conversation about health and safety as well in terms of, and particularly for, for riders, so in terms of kind of the servicing and the maintenance of the bikes, um, that was a real problem. Mm. So one rider telling me, you know, uh, bikes um, can be crashed six or seven times before they're serviced, or, you know, that the, the company might suggest actually it's your responsibility to have a look over that bike before you go out. And riders saying to me, but I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know. And when I say bikes, I should say some of them were electric bikes, some of them were scooters and mopeds. And, you know, again, that pressure was put on them that actually you should be looking over and, and signing this form to say that you've checked your, your vehicle before going out on it. They were saying, well, I haven't got a clue. Do you know, I don't know what the, the safety requirements are for this bike. I don't know how to fix it. Yet suddenly I'm in charge. It's, you know, shocking stuff, really shocking stuff. Because that's, I think, a trend, right? Really, the pressure and the, the responsibilities push on the workers, on the riders in that sense. Mm. Eh? So in, in multiple ways. Because what uh, what really stick to me, like when reading your, your research and the interviews, mm. uh, was indeed that, like the experience as well from riders coming on, like being offered a very, like I won't say good deal, but a very interesting opportunity mm. to, to start working with this company, getting uh, quite a good pay, even a good, good treatment also, like mm. in the speed of, of how they had to operate. And the, the belt tightening that went on, mm. like they're being squeezed. So you're off some way in, mm. but then like over time, things got worse. Yeah. And how is the experience of this? Because it wasn't like going through a manager, but more the app that was managing. Yeah. So the yeah. AI, so it's very impersonal in that sense. And the pressure was, was almost constant because yeah. you mentioned like holidays, paid holidays. So that's really about like the, the labor laws not being followed. Uh, so that's a real mm. problem, but also on the day-to-day -day basis, being able to take a break or being able to have the time to do your, your work mm. uh, decently and in a safe manner. Because if the pressure is there so much to deliver mm. within time, mistakes happen or accidents happen even. Huh? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you're, you're absolutely right when you talk about that kind of intensification of the work. I mean, I mentioned that funding environment um, and how that's changed. So you had this this kind of age of what we term patient venture capital. So this huge investment which has been pumped into the sector, which has, has enabled it to grow, even though, you know, a lot of the industry experts we spoke with suggested actually, you know, the whole premise of, of the way that this is set up makes it impossible to turn a profit. You know, if you're looking at a, a small basket of goods and you're looking at a 15 minute, say, delivery window, that's, you know, the time it takes to pick and pack the goods, send it out, 
and then get back to the dark store maximum you're going to be doing two to three deliveries an hour and you know these can be on very small baskets of goods and if you're paying you know at least the picker and the packer and the supervisor above minimum wage because that's what they were earning and then you've got the the, the costs as well of maintaining the equipment maintaining um, the, the, the premises and all those sorts of things that go with that actually the reality of being able to turn a profit looks near impossible mm. um, on top of that you then have the situation where actually the financial environment has changed so um, you know the funders are saying actually we're not going to pump any more money in actually inflation is, is has gone crazy you know you have you're having supply issues so these funders have said actually we need to these firms we need you to find a path to profitability how are you going to do that and what the workers um, were telling us, you know, the longer term staff, the ones who'd been there sort of a year or more, were saying, actually, it's really changed. When we joined, there was this kind of camaraderie and family kind of environment. And, you know, we'd all hang out and we'd, you know, go for drinks after or, you know, we'd have time during the shift to have a good time at work as well. It wasn't just sort of all go, go, go. But then they said, actually, that's that's really changed. And this intensification of the work became a thing. And they were saying, actually less people are being um, scheduled on shift um, we're being encouraged to deliver more and you talk about that kind of third party control and the algorithm being in charge so um, what happens is when a customer Put, submits an order so they download the app they submit their order within the dark store then the picker gets directed to pick and pack the goods um, and the app then tells the rider you need to collect this order and deliver it to, to the customer's address they have no ability to say actually I can't deliver this so when the app then starts allocating numerous orders or orders that are particularly large and particularly potentially hazardous for them to be carrying on their bike they've got no way of saying no actually I can't do this this is too much um, you know where am I going to sit you know if I've got all the bikes you know uh, the, the bags stacked here where do I go kind of thing um, one rider talked to me about how the box at the back of the bike he said well it's really dangerously over overloaded and you've got a bit of wind he said it acts like a sail so, you know you're riding along and you're you know trying to keep keep control of the bike actually becomes really difficult to do but who do you complain about this to do you know who do you go to is it all kind of communication with management despite the fact that you quite often had a supervisor or a manager within the dark store uh, the, the, the kind of contact with management was all done via whatsapp you'd have these whatsapp messages you know so people want to request holiday they have to do that and the message again kind of goes out there in the ether and you're kind of wondering is anybody listening do you know is anybody picking this stuff up one rider said to me, he described getting, um, uh, his words were, an auto-dialer from Turkey if I'm stationary for seven minutes or more. Mm -hmm. And the pretext is that this is a welfare check. But he said the reality is all the riders experience it as, why, why are you going so slow? Speed up. What are you, do, you, know, what are you doing hanging around for? And he said, actually, you know, if I have one of these big orders and I'm sent to a massive block of flats, I'm always going to be stationary for seven minutes. There's no getting around it. Do you know, what, what am I supposed to do? So yeah, that kind of third party control and, and the intensification of the work as this money and, you know, that the, the funders are requiring this path to profitability um, has, has really been felt by, by workers. So, you know, in terms of health and safety and workplace stress, that's, you know, that's another burden that, that these workers are, are having to bear. And so that, so they know, were really pushed by the machine, kind of. Yeah. They're being pushed yeah, around yeah. and the seven minutes, like, and you stay stationary. It's the seven minutes to actually deliver the goods. 
to mm. go off the bike and and put them in and and for me it sounds uh, uh, kind of scary or scary i don't know if that's the right word but it's it's very new i think as well that there is just a control of the machine but no human involved they're just like the, the the computer is is giving them orders and they're all executing what the computer says and what the algorithm says there's no check there's no like yeah, weather conditions like you said if there's a mm. lot of wind the computer and the algorithm I think it will not go that detailed that it knows exactly how this would fit on the bike. It's just mm. like, you know, probably there's, of course, there are some aspects that are being taken into account when it comes to weight of the order and every, everything. But it's very hard if things don't match up to, to go back and put the human as well center and the, the, the risk mm. that there is for the rider. So to coming back to this uh, this business that is like looks almost unsustainable financially, were the, the venture capitalists sold the kind of a dream during COVID? Because then, of course, everybody had to stay in. And this was a big, big change. It was a, a mm. moment of change for everybody. And we, we all work remotely now and part of it stayed. We all order more online and, and part of that stayed. But, but you were saying that maybe this part, it went a bit too far. Is there any future, you think, for, for this kind of services? And will they adjust mm. or Will it die down again? What What is your expectation or what is the advice you had in your, your report? Yeah, I mean, the, the market is changing very rapidly. So, you know, we're seeing only last week there are reports and... Uh, from Getir of what one worker termed a redundancy massacre. Um, so, you know, they're clearly making cuts. Um, at the same time, you've got, you know, I mentioned these being the pure Q-commerce players, if you like, but that there were other kind of incumbents operating in the sector as well. So you have those platform delivery firms, so the likes of um, Uber Eats, are, you know, are delivering from either established retailers or, you know, partnering, you know, in a way which may well be um, easier to turn a profit. But you also have you know existing kind of legacy retailers getting involved with the rapid delivery space so for instance um, Tesco's Whoosh have, have expanded now in the in the UK they have um, they're able to offer this service from over a thousand of their express convenience stores and they've kind of rolled that out sort of almost on the quiet and the idea being that actually you know that, that they'll deliver your goods within an hour but the reality is 90% of customers get it within 30 minutes so it makes you wonder you know what 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 is the future going to be because we know that these these other kind of bigger legacy firms already have um, you know they already have significant market share don't they they already have customers who like their brands and like their products and be, would be willing to, to shop with them because they know the specific goods that they're going to get that said you know these pure Q-commerce players have invested you know that 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 investment in both the tangibles and intangibles that I spoke about has been significantly higher which leads you to think actually some form of this is liable to stay in terms of what that might look like you know a lot of the industry experts we spoke with suggested that that super fast gimmick will go um, but also that they are likely to kind of continue diversifying so you know if customers think well I can get a, a pint of milk and a loaf of bread within half an hour then maybe I want to have I don't know some some clothes delivered to my door or a tv or some cosmetics or you know so whether they can kind of diversify their service and just say actually we can we can think about offering these other things um, in different ways so I think that you know th there will be a future in terms of rapid delivery retail of some sort the likelihood of it continuing in the way that it is now i think is very unlikely because of those pressures um, yeah. it's just in, unsustainable so it was a bit of an overshoot and a bit of an overpromise maybe during covid huh? mm. and uh, and 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 also the financial like you said like uh, there was a lot of cheap finance available now mm. with the inflation and the interest going up this environment is changing 
but we cannot like close our eyes for this reality of the delivery uh, sector mm. growing and and also this fast delivery maybe not within 10 minutes but then offered within an hour but in practice within half an hour mm. it's very much likely to continue and so so your research was in three countries in uh, in Spain UK and Germany is there major differences between those countries like what you saw like in the context because you mentioned that Tesco mm. is there but is there in Germany uh, are the retailers all operating in the same way is this really a european phenomenon because those are three very different countries mm-hmm. like okay they're all in the west of europe so it's it's a, a specific segment but spain is of course different from the uk especially so is there anything that you would take away from that that you think like okay we need to treat this as a european problem rather than than to see it country per country or? no it's, it was definitely an international explosion mm. of, of pure q commerce for firms we're not you know europe doesn't kind of stand out in that respect but in terms of the dif- differences that you mentioned you know each of those countries has its own kind of peculiarities if you like i know in the, in the uk the retail market is the largest in europe alongside the netherlands and that's grown kind of at quite an exponential rate when you compare it to some other markets so you know there is a significant market share that some of these firms are, are keen to kind of establish one of the the other really interesting things we found through our research was looking at how unions have organized these workers and actually there are very different industrial situations and and setups in in each of those countries which led to some really interesting comparisons and reflections so you know we did see for instance in Spain that the established mainstream unions were able to um, to really make some important developments I think building on some of um, some of the kind of established organizing that had been done amongst Glovo's Uh, takeaway delivery riders they were able to to expand there and they've had some successes in in both Glovo and Getir Um, and they've you know successfully mobilized strike action they've you know they've successfully negotiated improved conditions for workers Um, so you know we've seen that 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 it is possible to um, to to kind of organize and and campaign for unions and and drive improvements for, for these workers that said it's not without its challenges in the German case for instance um, the most kind of prominent form of worker opposition came from sort of um, informal or grassroots um, worker organisation and again you know they successfully um, successfully set up works councils at both the, the, the regional and the national level um, and you know they're actively involved in, in grievance and disciplinary procedures but you know the durability of that long term is perhaps an issue and, and resources constrained so you know the, the, the peculiarities have been really interesting to kind of compare how how the kind of the sector has grown and developed and also what the sort of industrial response has been. And, you know, we'd be keen to, 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 to kind of keep learning and keep finding out more and, and deepening this research because the sector keeps changing and um, seeing what those reactions look like and, and, you know, thinking about how policymakers need to be addressing that is is really interesting. Because you also, uh, as part of the research you did, is really about the organizing on the ground, the three, mm. three cra- cases. It wasn't only the market, it wasn't only the financial situation, the labor rights, but also how do unions operate in that, or not even unions, but how do riders get organized and, and, and what, is, what is there to be learned? I think also, like coming back to something you said before, so, uh, we have this, uh, this is on paper, the contract there is a labor contract which is already better than than what it used to be with the with the self-employed constructs that was there uh, with Deliveroo and Uber uh, yeah, so they don't have the, they don't even own the assets they don't even give a contract here we saw a different approach um, 
what what should be done to enforce in the end the rights? Because if you have on paper the contract, but in reality mm. a person doesn't get to take a, a paid holiday for a whole year, or uh, there's all these like uh, risks involved when it comes to uh, uh, hazards in, in in traffic and also the equipment not being in order. What do you think is the the approach to take to that? Like, is it gonna be the, the national authorities to really like uh, do better checks? Because in reality, mm. like the labor the labor checks, they they only take take place quite rarely or is it from the union side or is it more the european legislator what is your feeling about that uh, wh- where should we where should mm. we look for answers because like we concluded this form will change uh, mm. probably and it is changing because the market is developing quickly but th- some kind of concept will stay and and the yeah. riders they will be going out there whether it's within half an hour or within 10 minutes more likely within half an hour to deliver it they're gonna be pushed by the app and by algorithms i'm afraid mm. so how do we operate in that space what what is for you for the future what was the policy recommendation yeah. that you thought like okay that's that's where we need to push the politicians that's where we need to push also the unions to put their resources because they yeah. are an active player in this field yeah i mean rights absolutely need enforcing um i think you know a lot of the workers that we spoke with talked about you know again one of the other features of working in the platform economy this sort of rapid turnover of workers was really really significant um but workers also commented in you know both the german and, and the uk case talking about how um how managers like to recruit uh, workers from countries potentially with lower labour standards, um, countries, uh, you know, so that they were able to, to then exploit them, or people who were perhaps less aware of their rights. So you had a lot of students working there. So I think it's, you know, it, there's not one simple answer clearly, um, but uh, you know, I think it needs to be a combination of all of those. There's absolutely a role for unions to play when you look at, you know, you look at some of the kind of egregious violations of of some of the labour standards um, that that we found. You know, unions need to be in there. And they need to be um, they need to be organising and, and pressing for change. Um, but we also need workers to be aware of what their rights are and understand actually how they should be treated at work. Because you know so, some of the people that I spoke with simply weren't aware that you know this was potentially an issue and that, that that shouldn't be happening in the workplace. So you know I don't think there's a I don't think there's a simple answer, or certainly not not one that I know of. But you know enforcing these rights is is one thing encouraging understanding of these rights is another um, and then also kind of addressing the kind of peculiarities around precarity um, and also around algorithmic management that that seem to be sort of developing at, pi- at pace is really important thank you very much rachel for your uh, your time uh, to uh, express a bit uh, and explain a little bit the research that you did i advise everybody who's interested to also read the read the reports that you that you wrote uh, there's a lot of background in there and a lot of first-hand experience of the of the riders, but also the the union uh, union activation policies that were there in the three countries. If you like this podcast, uh, please don't hesitate to, to follow us uh, online. Uh, this was the Feb talks about the dark stores and Q commerce sector in, uh, in Europe. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag. Talks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.